Lord, you have been our dwelling place in all generations. Before the mountains were brought forth, or ever you had formed the earth and the world, even from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. You turn man to destruction and say, return, O children of men, for a thousand years in your sight are like yesterday when it is past, and like a watch in the night, you carry them away like a flood. They are like a sleep. In the morning, they are like grass which grows up. In the morning, it flourishes and grows up. In the evening, it is cut down and withers. For we have been consumed by your anger. You have and by your wrath we are terrified. You have set our iniquities before you, our secret sins in the light of your countenance. For all our days have passed away in your wrath. We finish our years like a sigh. The days of our lives are 70 years, and if by reason of strength they are 80 years, yet their boast is only labor and sorrow, for it is soon cut off and we fly away. Who knows the power of your anger? For as the fear of you, so is your wrath. So teach us to number our days that we may gain a heart of wisdom. Return, O Lord, how long? And have compassion on your servants. O satisfy us early with your mercy that we may rejoice and be glad in all our days. Make us glad according to the days in which you have afflicted us the years in which we have seen evil. Let your work appear to your servants and your glory to their children. And let the beauty of the Lord our God be upon us and establish the work of our hands for us. Yes, establish the work of our hands. Praise God. Praise God, Heavenly Father. Lord, we thank you for this time. Lord, we thank you for your word. Lord, I ask you, Lord, to speak your word this morning. Lord, let each and every person here, Lord, whether there is someone here who might be hearing about you for the first time or someone who might be walking with you for the past 70, 80 years, Lord, I pray, Lord, that you draw each person closer to you today. Lord, I ask you, Lord, to fill this place with your spirit and use my words, Lord, to, uh, Lord, to speak to our hearts. We thank you in, in Jesus' name. Amen. So Ryan just read from Psalm 90. Um, for anybody here who's here for the first time, um, we are going through the, the Psalms during the summer while Pastor Todd was away. The, the summer of Psalms. And so today, I want to read from Psalm 90. And so we will spend the next 40 minutes uh, going through the Psalm. There are 17 verses, and it's a lot to cover in 40 minutes. So we're going to break it up into four parts. So first of all, Psalm 90 is the oldest Psalm in the Bible. It is a psalm of Moses. It is the only psalm in the Bible that is attributed to Moses. The Bible says that it is the prayer of Moses, 
and man of God. There are a few other Psalms after Psalm 90 that people debate that Moses might have written, but this one is definitely attributed to Moses. So Psalm 90 is broken into four sections. Uh, verses 1 and 2 speaks about God's eternality. And verses 3 to 6 speaks about God's sovereignty. Verses 7 to 12 speaks about God's severity, his wrath. And verses 13 to 17 speaks about God's mercy. As we go through all of these sections, as we go through the psalm, my desire for all of us is that we will get to understand that the God that we serve is a God that can be trusted. He's a God that can be a God that we could put our faith and our hope in because he is eternal, he is sovereign, and because he is good. Because of all three of those things, eternality, sovereignty, and the fact that God is good, we could put our hope and our faith in God. So let's start with verses 1 and 2. Lord, you have been our dwelling place, our house in all generations. Before the mountains were brought forth, or ever you had formed the earth and the world, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. Moses is saying here, God, you are my dwelling place. But you're not just my dwelling place. You are our dwelling place. Moses carries all of the children of Israel with him as he prays to God. God, you are our dwelling place. What is the significance of God being Moses' dwelling place? We know that Moses is wandering through the desert, through the wilderness, when Moses writes the psalm. Moses might have been living in tents at the time, and we know that Moses before this, lived probably in the house of Jethro, his father-in-law, for many years, for 40 years, as a shepherd. And before that, we know that Moses lived probably in one of the palaces of Egypt as one of the princes of Egypt. And before that, we know that Moses um, kind of floated down the Nile River in a basket as a baby. But Moses knows that regardless of where his body is, regardless of the state of his physical state, his being, he knows that his soul is at rest and has made its home with God. So God, Moses says, God, you have been our dwelling place. The children of Egypt might be in the wilderness. They might be under the hand of the taskmasters in Egypt, but their dwelling place is God. But Moses doesn't just say, God, you are our dwelling place today. Moses says, God, you have been our dwelling place in all generations. That gives me comfort. You know, I have my parents here, 
And uh, my dad's older brother is here. He used to be actually a minister at Tremont Temple Baptist Church. And I was born in India. I was eight the day I moved to the U.S. And as a kid, you know, my grandfather, my dad and my uncle's father was a missionary, a pastor, and um, they were poor. And uh, I have never experienced hunger, but my parents did. And, you know, my grandparents had eight children. So I would hear stories about how um, there wouldn't be food in the house. And sometimes the kids would all be excited because the grandparents uh, or their parents had some food on the table. And then there would be a visiting pastor and a family visiting that evening. So the food would just be served to the visiting family. And the children would go to bed hungry and crying. Um, Obviously, our circumstances have changed over the years. But regardless of the circumstances, I could say, God, you have been our dwelling place in all generations. You know, uh, I remember even as a kid, as a kid growing up, we didn't have a bathroom in the house. There was an outhouse. And whether you're hungry or whether you have plenty, God is our house. God is our dwelling place. And Moses says that God is our dwelling place from everlasting to everlasting. So God is eternal, past, and God is eternal, future. That gives me comfort. I don't know about you, but for me, I feel like until about a year ago, I really didn't worry about anything. And I turned 40 last year. <laughs> And I feel like I'm starting to worry about things that I never worried about. You know, both of my parents are alive. I wonder, like, in 10 years from now, what is life going to be? Um, I feel like the older we live, we're just going to have to see people leaving. Uh, I worry about my children now. I never used to worry about them. I wonder what kind of a world that they will live in. Um, when I think about grandchildren, if Jesus is coming as delayed. What kind of a world will our grandchildren live in? Uh, just, you know, the, the different ways that sin is abounding in the world. But not just that, just when you even think about things like nuclear weapons and um, just sometimes I wonder what happens if an asteroid hits the earth. Like just random thoughts that the enemy puts in our head, right? And the other day I was thinking, man, a hundred years ago there were a billion people on the earth and there are seven billion people on the earth now. What's going to happen in the next 100 years? And where are all these people going to live? And as these thoughts come to our head, the one thing that I know is that we serve a constant God, an eternal God, even though the world around us is changing, even though from a worldly perspective we have much to fear, the fact that we are living in a dwelling place that is God, and we are secure and safe, we have nothing to fear, nothing to worry about. In Psalm 46, the Bible says, God is our refuge, our house, our dwelling place, and our strength, a very present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear, even if the earth is removed, even if the mountains fall into the ocean, into the seas, we will not fear because the Lord is our refuge. 
we have nothing to fear because we have made God our refuge. Let's continue. Verses 3 to 6 speaks about God's sovereignty. You turn man to destruction. Moses says, God, you turn man to destruction. And you say, God, return, O children of men, for a thousand years in your sight are like yesterday when it is past, and like a watch in the night. You carry them away like a flood. They are like a sleep. In the morning they are like grass which grows up. In the morning it flourishes and grows up, and in the evening it's cut down and withers. Here we see that God is a sovereign God. What does sovereignty mean? What does that mean? Many of you might know Pastor John Piper. He's, he lives in Minnesota, um, used to pastor a church called Bethlehem Church. He said that God's sovereignty is his right and his power to do all that he decides to do. So God's sovereignty is his right and his power to do all that he decides to do. I have comfort in the fact that our God is sovereign because our God is good, and we're going to get to that, and because our God is eternal. I remember watching a show on TV many years ago, and um, there are these people saying to this angel that is on the show, and he says, have you seen God recently? And the angel says, no, I haven't. And these people are saying, well, your God is dead. And how comforting to know our God neither slumbers nor sleeps. Our God is eternal from everlasting to everlasting. Here we read that God, it is you that turn man to destruction and say, return, O children of men. Sometimes we say things like, oh, so-and-so met with an accident and they died. If you are a child of God, your days are numbered by God. There used to be a show, and I've never seen the show on TV. There used to be a show called Days of Our Lives. Right? And the show would start, um, some of you might remember what I'm talking about. I wrote it down here. Like sands through the hourglass, so are the days of our lives. It is actually true, right? We could spend money, we could waste money, but we can make more money. But our days are finite. Each of us have a numbered number of days. God has given us a number of days. When, when, when the seconds run out, when the millisecond runs out, God will call us home. Here, Moses says, you carry them away like a flood. Imagine a tsunami. If a tsunami comes, we could try to resist it. Nothing you could do. The tsunami will just take you. When it is your time, God will take us like a flood. Job said in Job chapter 42, verse 2, I know that you can do everything 
and that no purpose of yours can be withheld from you. Job also says in Job 14.5 that our days are determined by God. In the book of Psalms, Psalm 139, verse 16, it says that God has fashioned our days before we were even conceived. He has numbered our days even before we were conceived. And there will be a second in the future, a millisecond in the future, where God will say to us, return, O children of men. So what are we to do? How many of you know who Jonathan Edwards was? He was a famous preacher who lived in the 1700s. Some of us are in the financial industry, the, the stock market. And Jonathan Edwards actually pastored a church right by Wall Street in New York. So Jonathan Edwards, as a young man, I think he was 18 years old, he proclaimed, Lord, stamp eternity on my eyeballs. Stamp eternity on my eyeballs. And then Jonathan Edwards would go on to write down 70 resolutions. And I think he was 18 when he became a pastor. But he would write down 70 resolutions that he would read to himself throughout the rest of his life. 13 out of the 70 resolutions had to do with time. Resolution number five. Resolved never to lose one moment of time, but improve it the most profitable way I possibly can. Resolve not to lose a moment of time, but to improve it, redeem it, redeem our time the most profitable way I possibly can. Resolution number seven. Resolved never to do anything which I should be afraid to do if it were the last hour of my life. Don't do anything that you would be afraid to do if your life was going to come to an end in the next one hour. Resolved, resolution number 17, resolved that I will live so as I shall wish I had done when I come to die. So live as you would wish you had lived when you come to your death. Let us be like Jonathan Edwards. Let us live with eternity stamped on our eyeballs, but let us live with, this, with the understanding that our lives are finite, that we have so many sands in that hourglass, and when it runs out, our life is done on this earth, and we will stand before a, a maker who is also a judge. So, because God is eternal and God is sovereign, we could have comfort and we could have peace and we could have confidence in our future. Let's continue. Verses 7 to 12 speaks about God's severity, his anger. For we have been consumed by your anger, and by your wrath we are terrified. You have set our iniquities before you. 
our secret sins in the light of your countenance. For all of our days have passed away in your wrath. We finish our years like a sigh, like, like we're tired by the time our lives are done. The days of our lives are 70 years, and, by, and if by reason of strength, they are 80 years. Yet their boast is only labor and sorrow, for it is soon cut off and we fly away. Who knows the power of your anger? The answer is no one. No one knows the power of God's anger. The Bible says that if God was to deal with us according to our sin, we shall be consumed. There will be, all through the Bible, Paul, Apostle Paul talks about this multiple times, a day of the Lord where the world will know the power of God's anger. For as the fear of you, so is your wrath. So teach us to number our days that we may gain a heart of wisdom. So Moses talks about the wrath of God, and ultimately he comes to the same conclusion as Jonathan Edwards. Teach us to number our days that we may gain a heart of wisdom. We recently, as a church, went through the entire Bible together. We had a series called Casket Empty. I remember uh, myself and David Gonzalez and a few brothers in the church, we met together and we were studying. Ernie was there, um, but there were a few of us. Um, Scott, um, we were studying the scripture together. And I remember the first week or two, Somebody said, you know, God is an angry God. The God of the Old Testament seems to be an angry God, whereas the God of the New Testament seems to be a God of love and mercy and grace. And the God of the Old Testament seems like he just wants to punish people. And I remember saying, I don't think that's true, actually. The God of the Old Testament is a very, very patient, patient God. And it's the people that are rebellious in the Old Testament. And it's the people that test God day and day and day. And we're going to read a passage from the Old Testament. Our God is a loving God who always starts with mercy. His wrath is always preceded by mercy first. Let me give you an example here. So Moses is writing this psalm in the wilderness. So what is happening in the wilderness? Let's turn to the book of Exodus, chapter 3, verses 7 to 10. We all know the story. Uh, if you've seen the movie, The Ten Commandments, it's a beautiful scene where Moses is coming to the burning bush. And God meets Moses, and God basically tells Moses, we, I've seen the cries of my people. Let's read that passage. And the Lord said, I have surely seen the oppression of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their cry because of their taskmasters, for I know their sorrows. So I have come down to deliver them out of the land of the Egyptians and to bring them up from that land to a good and large land, 
to a large, to a land flowing with milk and honey, to the place of the Canaanites and the Hittites and the Amorites and the Parasites and the Hivites and the Jebusites. Now therefore, I, now therefore, behold, the cry of the children of Israel has come to me, and I have seen their oppression, which the Egyptians oppressed them. Come now, therefore, and I will send you to Pharaoh, that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. So God loves the children of Israel. He hears their cries, and he says, Moses, I want to bring them out from the hands of these taskmasters that are hurting them. And God loves his people. Um, and we, we know that God goes through a process. We know the plagues. God, because of his love for his people, he, inf he inflicts judgment upon the Egyptians. And he brings the people of God out of Egypt. But what do the people of God do when they come out of Egypt? They start grumbling and complaining and questioning. They enter into sexual immorality. They enter into idol worship. And every single time God does something for them, they say, it was better for us back in Egypt. When God gives them manna, over tired of this food. Every single time God blesses them, they complain about God's blessing. So then what happens in Numbers chapter 13 is the children of Israel are now right at the edge of Canaan. There's a place called Kadesh Bernia. So they're at the border of Canaan. They're about to enter Canaan. So God says, okay, send in some spies. So they send in 12 spies. What do the spies do? 10 out of the 12 come back and they say, oh, these people are too big. We can't go into that land. We're like grasshoppers compared to these people. These people forgot the power and might of their own God who have been leading them through the wilderness, the same God who delivered them from the hand of the Egyptians. When they see the people in Canaan, the 10 spies forget how big their God is. Only Joshua and Caleb says, we could take the land. And what do the people of Israel do? They believe the report of the 10 people. In fact, they want to kill Moses, right? They want to stone Moses to death. And it's right after that, where right after the passage where the children of Israel says, we're going to stone Moses, God calls Moses. Numbers chapter 14, verses 11 and 12. Actually, th these verses that I'm reading are just a small portion of a much larger conversation between Moses and God. It's actually an amazing conversation. God is angry, but he's hurt, actually. God is betrayed. He's hurt, and he's sharing his hurt feelings with Moses. Numbers chapter 14, verses 11 and 12. Then the Lord said to Moses, How long will these people reject me? And how long will they not believe me? With all the signs which I have performed among them. Now God says, I will strike them with the pestilence 
and disinherit them. I will make you, Moses, a nation greater and mightier than they. And then, as you continue to read, Moses intercedes for the people. Moses says, Pardon the iniquity of this people, I pray, according to the greatness of your mercy, just as you have forgiven this people from Egypt until now. God, you have forgiven them so many times. Please do it one more time. Then the Lord said, Okay, I have pardoned. God forgives them, actually. So God is not this angry God. He quickly forgives. Like within like half of a sentence, God has already forgiven the people. God says, okay, I have forgiven. I have pardoned them according to your word, Moses. But God says, even though I have forgiven them, the consequences of their sin will remain. That is often true of us Christians. God forgives our sin, but often those consequences remain. Somebody might have some sort of a disease that came out of sin. God will forgive the sin, but often the consequence will remain. So God says, But truly as I live, all the earth shall be filled with the glory of the Lord. God knows that these people are not the ones to fill God's glory into the earth. God uses human means to, bring, to, to proclaim his glory, to expand his glory upon the earth. And God knows these people are not capable of doing that. And then God says, because all these men who have seen my glory and the signs which I did in Egypt and in the wilderness and have put me to test now these 10 times and have not heeded my voice, they certainly shall not see the land which I swore to their fathers, nor shall anyone who rejected me see it. Then God goes on to tell Moses, everybody under the age of 20 will enter. Joshua and Caleb will enter because they believe they trusted me. And anybody who's under the age of 20 will enter the promised land. And by the way, the children of Israel were saying, oh, don't take us into the land because our children will die there. And God says, no, your children will enter and they will thrive and flourish in that land. You will not enter the land if you're over the age of 20. Let's continue. So, so the, God is not a God that is an angry God. He's a merciful God. He's a loving God. It is a people that rebel and bring God to anger. Let's continue. Verses 13 to 17. This section is the section of God's mercy. Return, O Lord, how long, and have compassion on your servants. O satisfy us early with your mercy, that we may rejoice and be glad all your days. Make us glad according to the days in which you have afflicted us, the years in which we have seen evil. Let the work, let your work, God, appear to your servants and your glory to their children. Remember, we just read, God wants his glory to be established across the earth. And let the beauty of the Lord, our God, be upon us. 
Let the beauty of the Lord, our God, be upon us. Some translations will say, let the favor of the Lord and establish the work of our hands and establish the work of our hands. So this God, who's an eternal God, who's a sovereign God, who is a good God, in his mercy allows us to be a part of his eternal plan of redemption. Our God, according to Jonathan Edwards, his redemptive plan on the earth has two facets. On one hand, God wants us to partner with him in bringing about salvation and sanctification of humanity. But the second facet, God wants us to partner with him in God's work as a creator and provider on the earth. So that is why here, Moses says, Lord, let your work appear to your servants and let the beauty of the Lord be upon us. What is Moses referring to in terms of God's beauty? We know that in the book of Genesis, chapter 1, that God creates us in his image. So if God's image is beautiful, here it says, let your, the beauty of the Lord, if God's a beautiful God, then God's beauty is upon us. And then Moses says, let your work appear to your servants. If God's work is beautiful, our work should be beautiful if we are made in God's image. And Moses says, establish the work of our hands. Yes, establish the work of our hands. These Israelites were under slave labor, under the taskmasters for hundreds of years. Their work was about building Pharaoh's kingdom. Moses is now saying, God, please use our hands for your glory instead. Establish the work of our hands. Establish the work of our hands. Let's read through. I'm going to wrap up soon, but let's read through uh, a couple of verses in Genesis. Genesis chapter 1. So I just went through each of the six days of creation. Verse 4 is day 1. God saw the light that it was good. Day 2, verse 10. God saw that it was good. Day 3, verse 12. And God saw that it was good. Day 4, verse 18. And God saw that it was good. Day 5, verse 21. And God saw that it was good. Day 6, verse 25. And God saw that it was good. And then God looks at all of it and says, and then God saw everything he had, he had made. And indeed, it was very good, the Bible says. So God creates this amazing, beautiful world that is good for us. And then God creates humanity. Why? Because God loves us, right? Because God is a merciful God. He always starts with mercy and love. Then God said in verses 26 to 28, let us make man in our image according to our likeness. So God is beautiful. We are made in God's image. Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, 
over the birds of the air, over the cattle, over the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image, in the image of God. How many times does the Bible have to tell us that? Our image, our likeness, his own image, the image of God. And then the next verse says, he created them male and female. Male and female created in his image. He created them. Then God blessed them and said, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. Have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. I actually did listen. I was in Dallas, but I did listen to Andy uh, speaking from Psalm 8 um, a couple of weeks ago. And, and, and Andy also touched on this. God has allowed us to partner with him in his redemptive plan for, in creation and in providing for the world. If we are made in God's image, we should be doing the work that promotes beauty and goodness in the world. In Genesis chapter 2, verse 5, there's a, an amazing verse that most people just read over, skip over. It says that before any plant of the field was on the earth, and, because, and before any herb of the field had grown, for the Lord God had not caused the rain on the earth, and there was no man to till the ground. Two reasons. There are not yet plants on the earth. The first one is obvious. It hadn't rained on the earth. But still, I wonder, because the Bible does say there was like mist coming from the ground, that should be enough maybe to water the plants. But the second reason is pretty amazing. God waited for the plants to grow until he could create man on the earth because he wants man to partner with him and to till the ground and to cultivate. This is what we call the cultural mandate. Cultural mandate means a mandate by God to cultivate the earth. Whether you're a farmer, whether you're a baker, whether you are uh, an electrician, whether you are um, a plumber, an engineer, a banker, a money manager, it doesn't matter. Everything we do on this earth should be to expand God's goodness on the earth because we are made in God's image. You know, Martin Luther, the reformer, said that when the poor child prays or cries for bread, God could cause manna to fall from heaven. And God has done that in the past. But God uses, he chooses to use human means. God uses the, the farmer, the baker, the trucker, the storekeeper. God uses humans to bring about the flourishing of the world, to, to feed the hungry. Remember Jonathan Edwards' statement, God's redemptive plan on the earth has two facets. One is to bring about salvation and sanctification, and two is to bring about creation and, and provision on the earth. So our sovereign God, our eternal God, and this good God allows us eternally to partner with him in his redemptive plan. I'm so grateful that our God is all three of these things, sovereign, 
all-powerful. No one is more powerful than God. But if he was all-powerful and he was not a good God, that's, that's a problem. If he was all-powerful but he died or he, did, he ceased to exist, that's a problem. He's all-powerful, he's eternal, and he is good. That gives me so much comfort as a person. I hope these words encourage you. Let's pray. Praise God. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for your word. Lord, we thank you for the life of Moses and Lord, for the words that you gave to us thousands of years ago, Lord, through your servant Moses. Thank you for encouraging us with your word. Thank you, Lord, for being sovereign. Thank you, Lord, for being eternal. And thank you, God, for being good. Lord, we pray, Lord, that we are people, Lord, that will li live our lives with eternity stamped on our eyeballs. Lord, that we will redeem our time on this earth that we will live each and every day as though, Lord, the, the world depends on it. Our future depends on it. Let us not waste the, the finite time that you have given us, Lord. We love you, Lord. We praise you. I pray for the city of Winchester and the city of Medford and Stoneham and Woburn and all the neighboring cities, Lord. Use us for your glory, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.